As a church, we're, um, we're taking some time to talk about the speed of love in this season. We have a strong conviction that one of the greatest barriers in your life with Jesus is actually um, the speed in which you live. One of the greatest barriers to your spiritual formation, to your discipleship journey, to your growth and your relationship with God is the hurry that you live with in your life. And, and we can say that because I think we're all living in it. I think we live in an economic system that drives it. And I see that as someone as familiar as anybody with hurry. The reason why your discipleship to Jesus is so important, we believe, is because uh, we believe that you find the life that was intended for you when you take discipleship to Jesus seriously. That's what what we believe. It's a a conviction that we have, and it's a conviction that the church has shared for thousands of years. The conviction is based on a belief that Jesus was and is God, that he's the second person of the triune God, that he was present at creation in the cosmos, uh, uh, the creation of the cosmos as we know it, that he designed the way that it all works, and that he knows about the life that he intended you to live. He created you for that purpose. So that's the basis of the conviction. And then the other basis of the conviction that we have in teaching in this series is that, um, well, that Jesus taught and lived a lifestyle that not only can we learn about the principles from, but we can actually learn from his practices. We can learn from the, the rhythms and the routines in which Jesus lived. And, uh, and we're invited to actually follow in his steps in those patterns and rhythms and routines. We have to contextualize them because we're not first century Jewish rabbis. But, um, but we should contextualize them. Or, or are we? <laughs> I don't know. Chris Christine's like, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, last Sunday, Pastor Ian, he taught in John 15. John 15 is this beautiful passage where, um, where John, the disciple, he, um, well, he, he, he tells us about a teaching of Jesus. And the teaching of Jesus was about um, remaining in, in Jesus and abiding in Jesus. And, and that life is found when we actually like, remain in Jesus. And that fruit is, we bear fruit when we just remain in God and abide in Jesus. And, and that's not language that we use. Pastor Ian did a beautiful job teaching us that um, one of the best translations for abiding or to remain in is actually to make your home in. I just found that so beautiful. I found that actually so compelling and so clear. To me, when I was listening to Pastor Ian talk about making my home in Jesus, I actually pictured myself coming home after a long day of work and, uh, and sitting on a restoration hardware couch. Anybody with me? No? I don't, I don't own one, and I won't, but, but when I go to restoration hardware, I just... I sit in the couches and it's like you just sit back and you just relax and you just rest and you just, you feel at home. It's, it's that picture of coming home after a long day of work and you close the door and all the, all the noise and the chaos from outside is, is outside. And, uh, and you're just, and you're just relaxing. And somehow the kids are quiet. I don't know if they're sleeping. Who cares if they're sleeping or not? It doesn't matter. They're just quiet. Thank God they're quiet, right? And like that's the picture. And and like the dishes are done. You came home and the dishes are done. You just sat down and everything's done. It's in its place, right? That's the picture of being at home in God. And that's, um, well, that's what, that's what Jesus offers us through, through practicing the presence of God, through abiding in Jesus and remaining in him. And, um, and, the, and the really compelling thing about it as well is that, um, well, you don't just stay on your restoration hardware couch, Right? You need that. You need that fuel to get up and, and, and leave the door and go into the chaos and properly love. So you need the rest in order to do the loving. 
It's what we're called to. And abiding and remaining in Jesus is that rest that we need. That's what, um, that's what the teaching was last week. We're going to look at another teaching from Jesus today. And uh, that's found in Luke chapter 10. And I think a lot of the, the people who have been Christians for a long time, or even those who haven't, have, have heard this teaching before. Um, but it's a really good one. So if you have scripture with you, you can open it up to Luke chapter 10, 25. We'll find a very popular story that Jesus told. This is Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan. We're going to read and explore this this morning. And uh, when we do that, I want us to be conscious of the pace of life necessary to live like the Good Samaritan. Focus on the pace and the rhythm that was necessary for his lifestyle. Preceding this teaching of Jesus, he sent out the 72 disciples to go cast out demons, to go heal the sick, and to go preach the gospel. So that's what's happening just before in Luke. And then um, there's, he's interrupted by this expert in the law, is what the, was what the text says. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 25. So we'll put it up on the screens if you don't have your own Bible with you. This is somebody who would have been, um, well, would have been very familiar with, with, with the Jewish law. He would have been under, uh, familiar with the Torah. He would have been understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. He probably would have known them off by heart. He also, would have, um, he also would add a picture of who the neighbor is and what a neighbor is and what it means to actually love them well, and we'll see how that's relevant. And he also, what's also relevant is this man would have had a good understanding of the role of the priesthood, the role of the priesthood and the Levites, which were the priestly tribe. And you're going to see that reference. We'll talk about that and unpack that a little bit. So, so this person that Jesus is engaging, he wouldn't have had to teach him these things. He would have known these things. We don't necessarily know these things, so we'll try to add some context and make it a little bit clear. Verse 25, he says, Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now note that the teacher um, and the expert of the religious law, he's not asking Jesus the question of, uh, what must I do to go to heaven when I die? I don't know if you grew up in a tradition that would read this, and that's what you would assume inherit eternal life means. What do I do? What do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? But that's not what he's asking, and uh, it's really curious. You'll see how Jesus answers it. Jesus isn't answering that question necessarily, and we'll see that. What he was asking Jesus was, how do I ensure that I'll be part of the kingdom of God when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness? A Jewish person would have had a um, a very clear expectation of the kingdom of God coming at some point because they were promised their whole life. And they studied their whole life to try to anticipate that and see when it's coming and know when it's coming and then to be a part of it when it did come, right? And so that's what he would have been asking and anticipating. And, and what's interesting is Jesus doesn't respond with what I think most pastors in kind of the Western evangelical church have responded with in, 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 um, in at least recent time um, when I've been listening. Normally what a pastor would say here is, um, well, they would say you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. It's the, gift of, um, it's the gift from God by grace through faith. That's what they would say. And then um, they would say there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, right? What do I need to do to have eternal life and inherit eternal life? Well, you can't do anything. You just need to receive the gift, right? And you're probably like, yeah, that's, that's right. And it is, and it is, don't worry, it is. But that's not what's going on here, right? <laughs> it's not what's going on here. Um, Jesus' response is not that you need to believe the right thing. Even though we are taught, mostly, or I have at least been taught that, how do I inherit eternal life? Believe the right thing, right? That's not what Jesus says. This is just Jesus' words, and we'll look at it. I'm not twisting them, to be clear. Jesus says, 
here in his response to the question, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He said, uh, what is written in the law and how do you understand it? And so the expert would have understood that he has to follow the law or a believed he would have had to follow the law to inherit eternal life. But, but the expert, this is guy's such an expert that he was able to sum up the law in the exact way Jesus sums up the law. You see that? This is the expert talking. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said these words, right? Spot on. Perfect. Didn't say believe in loving your neighbor or a God and believe in loving your neighbor. It says love them, right? So it's, it's an act, right? It is, it, is, it is something that we do. And Jesus answers him, you've answered this correctly. Do this and you will certainly live. Right? You will inherit the kingdom of God when it comes. You will live eternal life, life and life to the full, as is promised in me. So how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. Got it. But there's obviously more to the story. We know that there's more to the story if we've heard this story. So we'll continue. But the expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? These experts, they can't just stop, right? Aren't you like that? Jesus like offers you everything you need and you're like, no, I gotta justify something. I gotta justify myself. I gotta justify my knowledge. I gotta justify my lifestyle. He knows that there's something that he's doing and he feels some sort of guilt and shame probably. So he's gotta justify it somehow and make clear for himself because he's kind of like, ah, I'm kind of doing this, but I'm really not that sure about it. So he's asking questions to justify himself. He wants Jesus to answer the question, well, and who is my neighbor? This is the part of the story that we're pretty familiar with. The expert in the law was presumably great at loving his Jewish peers. He was presumably great at loving his family and his friends and his literal neighbors. He didn't have a strong concept of enemy love, but he surely had a concept of neighborly love. And so he's trying to catch Jesus here, right? Trying to justify himself. Well, I'm really good at loving my neighbor, so am I good? The question that we're going to look at today, or the thing that we're going to highlight today, are two things, and one more than the other. The first is, who is our neighbor? And then the second is, what does love look like? That's what we're going to talk about. And so Jesus continues on in verse 30. He says, uh, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. Jesus is really good at responding with stories and giving good examples. I've actually reading on this a little bit and. um some people believe this is a real story, and this is a very likely thing to happen um, in that uh, time. Most people Jesus was speaking to would have shared the story with, would have understood the pathway between Jericho and Jerusalem. And there was a long way, which was safe, and there was a shortcut, which was extremely dangerous. It was a, it was a cavernous region. There was lots of space for robbers to hide. It was very well known that it's risky to go down that path. It's a shorter path, but it's risky. So even Jesus himself, when he traveled from place to place, often traveled around it instead of through it. So this is a region that was a very real region, and this was a very real risk. Verse 31, it says, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed by the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, he passed by the other side too. The religious expert here, he would have understood the nature of the priestly role 
and the significance of the Levites. The Levites were the priestly tribe of Israel, and so um, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. And so he would have understood that very well. He would have understood that Jesus really is talking about like the spiritual leaders or those ha- who had the, um, the spiritual authority to carry out worship for the whole nation of Israel. So these were kind of like the lead pastors or the bishops or the popes kind of thing. That's who he's talking about. And, and they had roles. They had, um, they had responsibilities that, that the religious expert would have understood. They were to uh, execute religious worship. They were to um, execute sacrifice on behalf of Israel. They were to practice religious uh, ceremony and rites of passage for, for the nation. So they had a lot of ministry to do, and they had a lot of roles and responsibilities. There's also something to note about the, um, the language. Notice the language, by chance, a priest. And I think what that Jesus is saying here is he's saying, oh, don't worry. He's trying, to, he's trying to get the guy into the story. He's saying, hey, look, there's somebody who's beaten and bloodied and left for dead, but don't worry. There's a priest happened to be walking by. And he would have understood that the priestly role is to take care of this person. Now, the priest had multiple roles. One of them would have been to care for people who needed to be cared for, but also had a series of other responsibilities in ministry. And so Jesus goes, hey, don't worry. There's a priest walking by, but... When he saw the injured man, he passed on the other side. He's like, wait, why? The priest was supposed to stop and help him. The Levite as well. He came to the place and he saw him and he passed by the body. There's a whole lot of roles and responsibilities for a priest. Not only did they have to take care of people, but they had all the other stuff that we talked about they had to do. And, and this would have been a severe and sincere um, interruption to the priestly role. Now, you could put yourself in the priest's shoes. It sounds like a bad dude. The Levite sounds like a bad dude. And uh, you can be like, wow, I can't believe that. A priest, a pastor, a shepherd, a spiritual leader would just walk by this guy. But you can also understand that, well, he had things he had to go do that were of great responsibility. He uh, did that to provide for his family. So he had a family to take care of, right? It w- it's no small thing. And, and, and if you understand Levitical law, like the expert would have, you would have understood the great inconvenience it was for a priest to actually stop and care for this man. Not only would it be like stopping and making sure he's okay, but, but if the priest came in contact with a man like this, who was bloodied and hurt and possibly dead, then the priest would become unclean. And then the priest would have to do all these ceremonies and rituals to become clean again in order to carry out practice. And, and if he was carrying anything with him, like livestock or anything like that, then that livestock would be unclean, and that livestock might actually be what's there to feed his family, because the tithe was actually food for his family. So you understand the inconvenience to a priest here. It's not just a small thing. It's not just like that jerk priest walking by, I don't care. It's, it would have been a sincere and severe inconvenience for him to stop and care. Should he have done it? Seems as though Jesus is telling us that he should, but also you need to understand what he was prioritizing and focusing on. He had things to do. He had ministry to get done. There are more important things than checking to see if this body was dead or this man needed help. Jesus continues on in uh, verse 33. He says, But a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? 
The expert in religious law said the one who showed mercy to him, i.e. the Samaritan, which would have pained him to say, if he was a Jewish expert in the law, to say that it was the Samaritan, the enemy, was the one who showed compassion and mercy and love. It would have pained him to say, but it was true based on the story. And Jesus says, go and do the same. You want to ask about what, what, how do you inherit eternal life? To go and do the same. That's Jesus' answer. Like we said, Samaritans were mortal enemies with the Jews. They hated each other. They've been fighting over land for centuries. And it's similar to like the Palestine-Israel conflict today. Very different, but similar in that like it's so complex and they're still fighting over it. And they just hate each other. And it's sometimes hard to know which side you know, is telling the truth here. Sometimes it's hard to know like who's really the oppressor and who's the oppressor. It's hard to know that because they're so ingrained in their own position on the matter. And that's how it was back then. They just hated each other. They just could not get along. It was a real challenge for them. And Jesus' invitation is for the religious expert to open up his mind to um, who his neighbor may be, because it may include a Samaritan, or it may include a dead body, an unknown dead body. Jesus is using this, um, this teaching to get across a point that I think, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, I think in today's culture we are doing a pretty good job of comparatively. And that point is that we... Um, we almost culturally now, it, it, is, um, it is celebrated to be inclusive and it is, um, it is condemned to be xenophobic, racist, and, uh, and, and practice bigotry. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's actually, uh, we can trace this ethic back to Jesus. And uh, sometimes you hear people who get frustrated about the way that that... Um, that cultural ethic is communicated or the way that it is enforced, maybe. Um, but the point is that the Jesus ethic to love our neighbor, that our neighbor is anybody who we see that is hurting, that is broken, that is bloodied, that is bruised, is, is like straight at the core of Jesus' ethic. And it was actually quite offensive to a lot of Jewish leaders and a lot of Jewish religious experts for him to say this because of the history that they had. It was presumptuous of him to say and I would say that our generation's doing a, a, a better job than many have in the past, I think, at this. We're working really hard at it, even though it's really difficult. It's a good thing. What I'm struggling with sometimes is actually seeing my own neighbors, actual neighbors, my own family, actual family, my own friends, actual friends, as those who are also needing neighborly love and care. I don't know about you, but sometimes the hardest people to love in my life is my own family. Shocking, right? Sometimes the hardest people to love in my own life is like my wife after a long day of loving everybody, you know? I come home sometimes, I don't know about you, but I come home sometimes and I have the least amount of grace and energy and effort and care and concern and compassion for my kids, my wife. I give it to everybody else, but it's really hard to do that with those who I'm close with. And so in seeing this neighborly love thing and thinking about it for yourself, maybe you're really, really great at that. Maybe the question for you is, are you really, really great at showing that same love and compassion and understanding to your own family? Because that might be where it needs to start. There's three elements in the Samaritan's love that I think make him a good archetype for love in Jesus' story here. So we're going to highlight those three things. I'm going to unpack them a little bit. The first is his compassion. 
Jesus is, um, talks about the Samaritan's compassion in verse 33. It says, But a Samaritan who was traveling across, uh, traveling, he came to where there was an injured man. He saw him and he felt compassion for him. Another translation for compassion here is to take pity on. And I know some of us like, some, did you, anybody grow up with Mr. T? I'm not going to assume that, but anybody? You know, I pity the fool, right? And then even today, it's a little bit more like, we don't even like pity. We think pity is a bad thing, right? Pity's not a bad thing necessarily. It's a, it's a good, good translation. He took pity on him. And what that means is, is, at least in the historical context, what it means is that he, he felt such deep like emotion and empathy for him, like in his gut, right? You, do, you, do you ever like, do you remember the World Vision commercials? Yeah, right? And it's the same commercial, same music in the background. Same, who was that lady who did it for years? That, is, that, is that who it was? Yeah, I, don't, uh, I just remember it being some famous lady who like for 10 years, and you're like, guys, get a new commercial. This is 10 years old, right? But you'd watch it, and you'd feel the same gut feeling every time. I don't know, but maybe I was a kid watching it mostly. And then like in my teenage years, watching like watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on CTS and then this commercial would come on. I've seen a hundred times and like it would, it would just get me right in the gut. That's, um, that's the language of compassion. Compassion is like, is a gut-wrenching feeling of pity or, 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 or empathy or sadness for, for somebody. Genuine compassion requires a few things. The first thing that genuine compassion requires is it requires to live at a slow enough pace to notice. The uh, priest and the Levite in the story, they saw the man. They didn't even know if he was dead. They didn't take the time to stop and notice. And I don't know about you, but do you ever feel like you hear something after the fact and you're like, gosh, I wish I knew. I wish I knew I could have helped. Or you hear about something good that somebody did, or you wish about you hear about somebody in a situation of struggle, and, and it's after the fact, and you go, I knew them. I wish I could have done something to help. You just you wish you noticed, right? Compassion requires us to live at a pace slow enough to notice. Your problem is probably not that you are an, an, a non-compassionate person. Your your problem isn't that. Our problem, most likely, is that we don't take the time to notice. We live at such a hurried pace. We can't stop and see. We're so busy. We've got religious rituals to do. We've got ministry to do. We've got jobs to do. We've got bills to pay. We've got other people to care for. And it's hard for us to stop and notice. We don't have the time for that. The second thing that compassion requires is to live at a pace that allows us to truly listen. It's similar, Right? You can notice something, you can see the man, right? But do you listen to the story? I don't know about you, but one of the things that moves me the most is just listening to someone tell the story. I hate it when somebody's telling me a story of pain and I have nothing to offer them, right? You ever feel that? You're like, I don't even know what to say. I'm just sad. I'm just compassionate. I'm just like, I just hurt with you. Isn't that what you want? My wife tells me all the time, you could imagine, right? <laughs> all the time, right? Just... You're not listening. You're not listening. Not listening. I'm like, I am listening. There's a hockey game on. So let me listen so we can get to the hockey game, right? I'll listen. I'll listen, right? I'll listen. Just be, you know, speed it up, right? Like, come on. You know what I mean? Like, I'm listening. I'm here to listen. But like, I don't have all day, all night, right? 
I'm alone in this, right? Guys, right? Nod your head, boys. Please, save me here. No, Dean, no. We're with you, okay. Compassion requires us to live at such a pace that we can listen. And listening takes time. Like, actually listening takes time. So much time. Too much time, right? How are your kids doing? How are your teenage kids doing? Do you have compassion for your son or your daughter and what they're dealing with? Like, did you notice? Do you really, do you even notice what's going on? Sometimes I've been working in youth ministry for 10 plus years and a lot of times I'm like, wake up mom and dad. No, my kid's fine. No, he's not. My kid doesn't do that. Yes, he does, right? Even notice and then you take the time to listen. Do you listen to your aging parents? Do you listen to them? Some of the decisions that you're making might be practical, might be efficient for you, might save you a lot of headache and frustration and time. Do we listen to them? Do we hear the burdens of their heart? Are they, do we hear how lonely they're feeling, especially coming out of COVID? Like, do we take the time to help with their feelings of loneliness by just being there present? Listen, it's hard to. You've got so much to do. But compassion requires us to live at a pace where we can truly listen, isn't it? And then the third thing that it requires is us to live at a pace where we can actually feel compassion. It's a feeling word. I have to get so I have to say over and over and over again, get more and more comfortable with feeling words because it's not natural to me, right? It's a feeling word. But do I live at a pace that allows me to actually feel and pay attention to my feeling? Because I could notice and I could listen, but if I don't stop and actually like let whatever that gut feeling is, like let God actually do something with it, process it, sit in it, right? Then it's usually what it always is, which is ah, I noticed and listened, that was enough work, but I didn't really do anything about it. I didn't, there's no offering of any kind of useful solution because I don't feel it, right? Empathy requires you to just sit and feel what someone else is feeling. That takes meditation, it takes focus, it takes time, it is exhausting, but that's what compassion actually requires of us, to notice, to listen, and to feel, and all those things, they take time. They take time. Becoming self-aware of our own emotions and the understanding of our own feelings, that's where we can truly love others and care for this world. So that's compassion. The first thing the Samaritan had was compassion, like real compassion. He stopped to notice, he paid attention, and he felt in his gut for this man. The second thing that the, the good Samaritan had was margin. He had margin. It says in verse 34, he went up to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. He either had time or he made time for an interruption. C.S. Lewis once said, how you respond to an interruption is who you truly are. Oof. Oof. I'm great. I'm great if I got nothing else to do, but it'd be great. But if I'm busy with something important and you interrupt me, how am I? If the priest stopped to notice the body, he probably would have felt compassionate feelings towards this man. 
And I don't know about you, but you feel compassion. You maybe notice, you maybe listen, you maybe feel it. And that's the starting place for actually love. But it's not actually enough <laughs> for love. Watching a World Vision commercial and feeling in your gut, ah, right? That's not love in its fullness, or it's at least not neighborly love in the way Jesus teaches us here, is it? The thing that separated the priests from the Samaritan was compassion, but was compassion to a point of action. He had margin in his life to actually do something. He had time in his life to actually help with something. He not only felt compassion or pity, but he actually readjusted his lifestyle to take care of the man. It required margin. It required living a life that has space for that. And you might be living a life that just doesn't have space for that. I don't know about you. There's a lot of times I just feel like I feel guilty that I don't have the margin to actually help and love people well because it's just full of so much other stuff. I wrestle a lot with the balance of work and discipline and schedule keeping and being home in time for dinner. Like I wrestle with that because those are all really, really good things and really, really good priorities. And we're talking about practices. We're talking about rhythms. We're talking about habits. It's all good. So I wrestle with the balance. I think we all wrestle with the balance of that, which is holy and good and righteous, with having the margin in our life to help the neighbor and to care for the neighbor who's in a position of need. There's no formula to it. That's what's so exhausting about it. There's no formula to it. There's just a principle there's just an ethic. And we have to contextualize it, and we have to spend time with God to make it clear for us in a particular season where we're at with it. It's something that we need to self-audit all the time. We need gut checks for all the time, and hopefully Sunday mornings sometimes are a gut check for us. But maybe the question, based on this, that margin is necessary, is are you too busy to help anybody? Like, are you just too busy like, is it like you can give your crumbs here and there, but it's really not lasting? It's not really doing much because you're just so busy with really, really important things? Do you have lifestyle choices that are taking you away or robbing you of the margin you would have to properly love and to care? Would investing in the Christian community cost you more than your lifestyle can afford right now? Would one more spiritual discipline in your life just be too much to handle for you? Do your late night TV habits lead you to be constantly exhausted, sleepless, and anxious? Do you have margin in your home to care for your closest neighbor, your spouse? I don't know about you, but a week goes by and I'm like, well, why didn't I have time to actually think about how to do something nice or say something nice to my spouse? I'm just too distracted. Do I have margin in my life for those things? Remember, we're inviting us to live into the speed of love, and in doing so, Jesus promises life to the full. That's why we ask the questions we ask. And we ask them of all of us together. The third thing that stuck out to me in this text, and it kind of runs contradictory to the last one, but it doesn't, and here's, you'll see why. The next day, it says in verse 35, the next day, uh, the Samaritan took two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when you come back this way. The third thing that the Samaritan had to offer was resources. The Samaritan man had resources to offer. 
He had compassion. He had margin. And he had resources. They're all possible to have. Compassion and time without resources, well, it um, often puts you in the position of being the needy person eventually, right? It creates more challenges sometimes. It's a necessary part of the equation to neighborly love. Now, I don't know if the Samaritan inherited a bunch of money. It doesn't say. It does give clues that he was a working man. It seems like he was on his way somewhere and that he had to leave the man at the inn to go continue doing whatever he was doing. And so would it appear that he was a working person with roles and responsibilities, work to get done? Something to note about the amount of money that he left, just out of curiosity, the denarii, a silver coin, was the equivalent of a day's wage. So he left two days' wages with the innkeeper, which in modern times, in Milton, Ontario, a day's wage is about 200 to $250. So let's say he left $450 to the innkeeper out of his pocket spontaneously, boom. And then whatever else expenses need to be paid for, I'll pay for them when I come back. That's just the equivalent. It's a significant chunk. It's a significant amount. It's a significant resource. It's, it's generous, at least, right? There's a value in an assessing in the kingdom of God to be hardworking, to make decent money, to build. That's kind of built into the archetype of the good Samaritan. And sometimes this is more of a message for the younger crowd than the older crowd. I talk to young men a lot about work. And um, there's, when, I was, when I was growing up, there was like this, um, it was like this ministry, um, this, is, is the life of ministry a life of, of, of less work? And the answer is no. And then there was um, this weird season in, in my mid-20s, my early 20s, where it was like, I was wrestling with, like, how much am I serving if I'm called to serve God and I'm called to serve people and I'm called to, like, minister and stuff like that? How much am I called to work? It's a really complex thing that I was wrestling with and some of my friends are wrestling with. And one of the things that I think is understated for young people, in particular young men, is that good work, hard work, and doing well is actually good for you. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a really important part of the love of God and being able to love God through neighborly love. And I encourage young men to work. I encourage young women to work, to work hard, and to do well for themselves in that way. A lot of times what ministry can do is be an excuse to avoid actually working, and that's not, it's not a healthy place to be because it's necessary for the neighborly love of God. At least according to the story, he had it, and he continued having it. The Good Samaritan, he lived at a speed of love, which didn't include not working, is maybe the point. Your work is essential. Your work is important. Your work is necessary. The work that you're doing to make what you make, to help those around you, is a good thing. It is a gift from God. Praise God for that. The other two things, margin and compassion, don't necessarily need to be at the expense of work and resources, is maybe the point of the story. And I think that's pretty clear here. As we wrap things up, I want to remind us of the three things. Compassion, margin, and resources. Jesus' archetype for neighborly love was to live at such a speed and pace to feel compassion, to have margin to help, but also to work to have the resources to do the help. And I find for myself there's different seasons where I have strengths and weaknesses. There's different seasons where I'm grinding. I don't know about you, there's seasons where where I'm grinding, but I don't really have a whole lot of compassion and not really a whole lot of margin in my life. 
and God calls me back. And then there's seasons in my life where I feel, man, I'm full of compassion. I've got all this time to do stuff for people. God's like, nah, but you've got to take care of some stuff here in the resource center because you can't really help anyone if you're a burden to people. So I don't know what God's going to be teaching you this week. I don't know what he's going to invite you into this week. If it's anything more than just him wanting time with you and ministering to you with his love, maybe through this teaching this week, he's going to invite you into a space where you get to ask questions about one of these three things. And here's some questions to start with. Am I spending enough time with God in such a way that it's producing more compassion in me than others? And if not, then I probably need to spend more time with God. Do I notice the hurts, the needs, and the struggles of those closest to me and then those further out? Or is there something that I need to adjust in my schedule in order to experience that? Get clarity on that. Feel compassion again. Maybe for you it's margin. Maybe your weekly rhythms are just too stacked. They're too busy. You've got too much going on. You just don't have the margin for your family, let alone anything else. Maybe you need to look at your schedule and you need to go, what, what is just fat here that needs to be cut? Where can I create space and margin to actually practice neighborly love? Or maybe for you, you've got way too much margin. Your whole life is margin. And maybe God's invitation to you this week is to start working harder, investing more, accumulating more, or living more simply, minimally enough to meet needs with resources when they arrive. I don't know what it is for you, but I believe God has something for all of us in all the things that he teaches us through his word. So as we close, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to invite the band to worship, lead us in worship for one more song. And in prayer, I want to remind you again, and in the song, I want to remind you, if this space for you just needs to be home, where you sit and you rest and you breathe for a second, let someone take care of your kids for five more minutes, maybe. Jeff's doing an excellent job, I'm sure. Let it be that. Uh, in worship, if you just need a moment to be in the presence of God and be ministered to by other people's voices, don't feel the burden, the obligation to sing. Or if this is a moment for you to get up and stand and sing as a congregation and honor God with your voice, you can do that as well. I want to pray for us as we go from here. Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, thank you for the spaces that we have the, the, um, and the people to practice it with, to just be, um, to be in your presence, to be reminded of your goodness and your love and your presence. Thank you for your teaching in Scripture through the words of Jesus recorded by the apostles and others. We thank you for that, Lord. It's... Um, it's clear to me the, the life that you offer us, the life of et the eternal life that you promise us, life and life to the full in the kingdom of God. And it's clear to me that there's, um, well, there's ways to live into that and experience tastes of that. And I want that. And it's also, Lord, clear to me that I always have things to be adjusted by you. I ask, Lord, by the power of your spirit to reveal in my life and the lives of those here the small micro adjustments we can make this week to experience more of your presence and live more in accordance with your kingdom. I ask for rest 
for this community as well. Not just striving to be better, but rest as well. Rest that can only be found in you. I pray that somebody in here goes home today and sits on their couch and just feels free in your presence. Even amidst the challenges, the pain, the suffering, the heartache, the work that needs to be done, I pray that somebody here can go do that. Just be ministered to you by you in their own home. Feel at home with you. I pray we feel at home with you. And all this, Lord Jesus, we honor and worship you because you are king, you are a savior, you are lord of the universe. Amen.